What the fuck is up, people? This is Ron Sense. This is Ron. All right. I uh, don't know exactly when this episode will actually come out. It's I'm recording on 325. Uh, so what is this? Uh, it's Friday on uh, March the 25th. But I, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. It's kind of just like a random topic. So that's why I, I'll probably try and put this out early next week is I guess when you would hear it, uh, we'll, we'll kind of see, but this has kind of been a topic that for a while has intrigued me and haven't totally figured out how to talk about it or kind of, so I'm kind of going off the cuff here, but it was just like a random thought and I was kind of sitting here and I was like, you know what? I should record this. So something that obviously, at least for those of you who know me or know me well, know that uh, I'm very analytically minded and science in math are some of my favorite things, right? They're things that I'm very good at. It's what my career is in. It's always been something that intrigues me. I like looking thing at things hyper analytically and for better or for worse. And also, many of you know, and certainly if you listen to the podcast, you obviously know, considering the amount that I talk about sports, is that I also really love sports. And so these days, we have seen more and more of the convergence of the two, right? Science and sport have become more and more intertwined, and especially when it comes to things like analytics. So perhaps this would be... This will overall be surprising to you, but I really do think that this does not get talked about enough when it comes to analytics and sports. And that's kind of like the, the TLDR version here, and I'll certainly extrapolate, but is that at a certain point, science ruins art, right? Like to give like the most obvious example is the current state of basketball for for example right the current state of basketball is far less interesting i think most people agree that it is far less interesting that it's just all three pointers there isn't a lot of post game there's like jump shooting is sort of discouraged there's just a lot of elements of the game that just don't feel like you're you're actually watching basketball and and then in the case of baseball, right, is that it's basically strikeout or home run. No one plays for bases. No one hits against the shift. No one tries. I mean, no one steals 50 bases anymore because no one's on base. Like no one's taking walks. Like it's just like hit like people's on base percentages are terrible because all they're doing is they're either hitting home runs or they're striking out or they're popping out or they're hitting straight into the shift to ground out. So. And I think that most people don't like how those sports have kind of gone. And football suffers a little bit from this, although at least in the case of football, one of the things that um, I would say, well, we'll get into it, right? But one of the things that analytics has done is going for it on fourth down more, which is typically more exciting. Now, whether or not it's better football, I, I would actually, I would say that that's very arguable, but, um, but it, it's definitely adds an element to the game that's actually enjoyable. But, uh, the other thing, the thing that's not so enjoyable is, for example, the short passing game, right? So it's kind of like what the Patriots were doing forever. 
that they just inserted your, you know, random white slot receiver and Tom Brady would throw them three to five yard passes like over and over and over. They wouldn't run the ball basically at all. And they just would win everything. It was an unstoppable offense because the way that the rules, again, the defensive restrictions because of the um, the rules and because of the fact that it's such a high percentage play that like it, it just but it's just not fun, right? Like no one enjoys watching a three yard slant that like and then gets like a, an extra yard after the catch. So like a four yard play over and over and over from something like that, because it's like there's nothing really interesting, at least like if a running back gets a four yard run, there's the possibility that like maybe they broke a cool tackle or like they made some nice move to to lose a defender what have you. But so in general, we've seen analytics start to come into sports and more so in the forefront, right? So we've, there, there's been this, um, this sort of climb in general with the sort of intersection of science and sport. And I do believe, uh, like all things, right? There is some sort of intersection point at which you've really maximized. So for example, uh, the science behind uh, recovery behind uh, strength and conditioning behind diet and nutrition are all good things, right? I, they have, uh, without a doubt, increase increased the um. In, they've made a better product on the field or on the court, what have you, right? The the it's ultimately created a better product because it has. Whether it be in the margins, which obviously at the, this level of competition, that's basically all you can do is be in the margins, has made athletes better, right? I mean, so, you know, famously, right, LeBron spends like over a million dollars on his body a year outside of like what he gets as a part of like team stuff, right? Because he's doing all of the things to take care of his body. And that's very much the case across the board. Obviously, right, Tom Brady, we've seen how he's extended himself so much because of really getting into the details on these elements. This is un, like undisputedly made for a better product because the athletes have been become that much better because of the, the optimization of their bodies. Um, where we start to sort of uh, like jump the shark, if you will, is how analytics has come to play in the game because the, and, and I hate the way that this is covered, right? Because like, if you turn on like basically any sports show, I mean, there are obviously, uh, commentators who sort of push back and it's like, you know, follow your gut and stuff like that. And they kind of sound cavemanish and like, and whatnot. But a lot of people legitimately say, you know, well, this, this team's doing it smart. This team's doing it different. This team is doing it, um, better than the rest because they're using the analytics. They're following the science. They're following the math, right? And so the implication is that if you're not doing what they're doing, that you are like math illiterate or that you don't believe in the science, you know, or you're stuck in the past type of thing. But what bothers me is how actually unintelligent analytics often is and it really bothers me because of the people who are talking about analytics, not even like, right, we're one step removed, right? We're talking about the commentators who talk about the analytics. So they're not even the people who do the analytics, how much they don't understand what's going on. 
that they can't even ask the right questions about whether or not the analytics is right to begin with. It's like they take it as it's this black box, which can be nothing other than right. And they can always lean on the idea of if it doesn't work, it's the statistics playing out, right? Because everything is not, nothing is statistically 100%. So for example, right, going for it on fourth down, if they don't get it, they can ultimately say, well, it's not in a hundred percent chance. And that's true, but it's a cop out to the, to the overall argument. And I would agree that it is probably a bad faith argument that if all you're going to say is like, whoop, look, see, they shouldn't have gone for it because of the result, right? Because there are th- like execution is a mat, but this is the problem, right? So you can blame execution or the way that the people who are very pro analytics these days, Blame the execution. For example, like, let's say you have a fourth and two play and they do some, like, some sort of, uh, play action, run up the middle, try and get a linebacker to bite and get, like, a, a slant right behind them to get, like, the two yard play off the slot or, you know, maybe like a quick out route from the tight end, something like that. And somewhere along the lines in the execution, let's say, the line gets blown like at, you know, at the line of scrimmage, your offensive line gets blown up and the quarterback just doesn't even have a chance because of like an all out blitz or something like that. Or, um, the, the defense doesn't bite on the run and plays good coverage against that play. You, you know, some, something to that effect, something that where the execution was poor or bad snap or something like that. And, and then so the pro analytics side will can basically just say, well, the execution didn't play out. And if the execution was perfect, this was the right call, regardless of the outcome, which ignores an enormous element about how he would do the math on whether or not it's the right decision. Because so in a bubble, like if you're just looking at it and let's say that the league average for fourth and two, the conversion on a on a fourth and two play is 57%, right? Okay. So first of all, just because it's above 50% doesn't mean that it is actually the right move still, because you still have to consider, uh, what's the percentage of if, so if you fail, right? If you fail, so whatever that is, that 43%, right? The 43% chance that you don't convert. If you fail, what's based on the conditions? Where's your, where are you on the field? Um, which is the problem again is because of how surface level analytics is. That's all it would look at really is where you are at on the field. But how is your defense? Like this is the next element that does not get accounted for in the, in the, um, in the numbers. This 57% has nothing to do. This 57 and 43% have nothing to do with these factors, right? How is your defense playing? Maybe you just had your star defensive player get hurt. Something like that. How is your offense doing? Is your offensive line even winning the line of scrimmage? If you're winning, if your offensive line is not winning the line of scrimmage, you do not have a 57% chance of converting that. So it is, it makes absolutely zero sense to say, well, the league average is 57% for converting that. Really? Well, what's the league average when your offensive line is effectively starting off the snap two yards behind the line of scrimmage? But that's not, no one talks about that. So how, how do you factor that into, into a play? Right. So again, like, and that's where it's like people would say like, Oh, it's my gut, right? I'm looking at the game. I'm looking how the game plays. We can't convert that. I don't believe we can convert that. But again, so let's, you know, so 
again, let's just go back to this 57-43, right? 57% chance of success, 43% chance of failure. So the other thing that you would have to consider, which analytics will not, is if you have that 43% chance failure, what is the percentage chance? So what it, effectively what it comes down to is what is the estimated value um, of that decision? So for example, you fail at that 43% uh, clip. What is the percent chance that the uh, opposing team scores off of that? And how much is the the, the score going to be? So like if the opposing team then has a, let's say, a 50% chance of a touchdown and a 50% chance of a field goal, and assuming, let's just assume for the sake of the argument that the, the um, extra points guaranteed, so we're saying 50% chance of a seven points or a 50% chance of three points, then um, – you know, I, I mean, which is obviously like, right, then you're saying that the, the team effectively has an 100% chance of scoring, which uh, of course is ridiculous. But I, I only use that to make this point here, okay? Is that, okay, so then the estimated value for the other team comes down to, um, what is that? That's a estimated value of five points for the other team, effectively, right? Because 50, 50% of times, you know, 50% times three is 1.5. 50 times 50 percent times uh seven is 3.5 you add those together that's five points so effectively the 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 expected value uh from for the other team is five points so it means as far as you're concerned that is a negative five point expected value that's going against you so now you then have to consider on that 50 percent seven percent chance that you do convert what are the chances of you scoring so now let's say that in your case you have a 75% chance of getting a three, of getting a field goal, and a 25% chance of getting a touchdown as a result. Okay, well, so now, then now the math changes, right? Because now you're looking at it and like, um, so 75% of three is what? 2.5, let's see here. Um, 0.75 times three is 2.25, okay. And then, uh, 25% of seven is 1.75. So 2.25, right? So now your, your expected value it all in is four points, which means even though you have this 57% chance. So now, so now basically what it comes down to is that your 57% chance of getting four points. So now you say times 0.57 is 2.28 and 0.43 times five is 2.15. So now all of a sudden your 57% chance is to effectively net you 0.13 points. So if you go purely off the numbers, you would still in this example, and of course, like this was just an one example. The numbers could be wildly different. Obviously, they both would not be in a hundred percent chance to score. But my only point being is that your your estimated value is a plus point one three. So your uh, or your expected value, I should say. I always say estimated value, but expected value is actually point one three points. That's marginal. That's a marginal amount of points. So, and my point is, is that you can say, okay, you ignore everything else and you just say, well, my expected value based on that is 0.13 points. That's a marginal amount of points that is absolutely 
um, threatened by the biases of the specific environment, right? It like, given two different factors, given one different factor, right? You lost your fucking left tackle. The, you lost your defensive, your best corner. Um, you, you know, anything like any singular factor is enough to change that expected value of 0.13 points to a negative, a negative difference, right? And so now all of a sudden your expected value is, is worse. So the, so now all of a sudden, again, we get back to the, the base layer of this, the surface level is that you have a 57% chance of converting. You should, you should do it. But that's, but then you break down this math and uh, effectively the, the, the percentage, like the overall expected value of it is so near zero that given any level of variance, you're very likely uh, on the negative end of it. Um, and, and so this 57% chance is an illusion. Uh, similarly, and then because the problem is you can't really do analytics on your own team because of sample size. This is the problem, right? Is so from the standpoint of statistics is that if you don't have a large enough sample size, the numbers are not reliable. They don't mean anything. So, and then you get into the fact that every single situation is unique. And so therefore you can never really have the sample size necessary to truly mathematically quantify the situation at hand. And so, uh, again, this this is where, like, you have to consider all these factors and you effectively have to do the calculation in your own head, which is ultimately what people do when they say they go with their gut. We we do this calculation in our head. For example, um, just to make an analogy here, right? If if you had a, a football, for example, and and someone said, you have to throw that football into this trash can 15 yards away, you don't go down and go in onto a pen and paper and then suddenly, you know, and then write out the equation that would tell you exactly the launch angle of the football and the exactly the velocity of the football to put it into that can. You just throw the ball into the can. And I I mean, if you're good at throwing footballs, there's a high likelihood that you will throw it into that can and you're not doing the calculation consciously you're doing the calculation subconsciously your mind is doing the physics in the background and that but effectively what that is is going with your gut right that's going with your your natural ability through training like you've trained yourself to be able to do this and and so it's it's very much a similar situation and and so and, and in fact right if you tried to do the math and and because the math would be in this case a hundred. I mean, uh, obviously, isn't actually wouldn't even be a hundred percent right because what's the air pressure? Are you in Denver or are you in fucking New Orleans? Are you in a dome? Or are you outside? Are you? Is there wind? Like all of these factors would play into the calculation, but the basic calculation, given that no other factors have have been changed, it would a hundred percent get you the right answer of what, like, what's the launch angle and what's the speed you would have to throw that football to get it into that can. But you cannot physically guarantee that I'm going to throw this football out of my hand at 60 degree, at a 60 degree angle relative to horizontal. And 
you can't guarantee that you're going to throw this football at exactly 14.42 miles per hour or whatever, right? Like, just throwing out random numbers. Because, like, if if I told you, throw a football at a 60-degree angle relative to a horizontal plane at 14.42 miles per hour, you'd be like, I, I, I cannot do that. But if I told you, throw this football into that trash can over there, you could do it. And, and so that's the difference. That, that really is the difference is that bringing the analytics into the forefront doesn't actually guarantee that you're going to be more correct because it, it's about execution. And it's also about the fact that there are other factors. If there was wind, you would have an idea of how to throw that football to get it into that can despite the wind. But to calculate it makes it so much more difficult. And again, you would never be able to like, oh, I actually have to throw 15 degrees to the left of that can to make sure it goes in. It's, it's just not, it's not realistic. And so the same thing really goes down to the level of analytics when it comes to gameplay. And not only that, but it also tends to ruin the gameplay. For example, now we go to basketball where everything's moved to the three point line, right? And the idea is, and this is where people wrongly espouse this is that the three point is the most valuable shot, which even within the analytics community, a lot of people will, um, at the very least, dispute that because it's not the most valuable shot, even if you do, like, um, even if you're going to do this rudimentary analytics, right? This is, this is like child's play analytics that's being used in sports. It, it really is. It, it's, it's complete. It's so incomplete. It's ridiculous. So, but anyways, right? So you say that a three point, a corner three is the second most valuable shot behind a dunk, which again is not actually true because a layup, I believe, actually has a higher percentage. Um, especially when you account for the fact of, I, I, which I don't believe analytics does account for is the, the percentage chance of getting a foul and going to the three point or and going to the free throw line as a result. So anyways, we say that, uh, a, a, a corner three is, you know, whatever, maybe a, a top three value, sh- value shot behind Duncan layup. We'll, and we'll just combine Duncan layup for the sake of it. So let's say it's the second best shot available, but that's not exactly true. And, uh, it, it's also an issue of the statistics are self-reinforcing. And uh, I, I want to give credit to Amin Hassan, who has for a while now kind of – I mean, it's not like he's like anti-analytics, but he has bucked this a little bit in in when it comes to basketball. And his point is exactly the way I've thought about it for some time. But um, – Anyways, right, so that corner three isn't actually the best, necessarily the best shot because it also depends on who's shooting it and how they've been shooting that night, right? Just because somebody is, let's say, a 40% shooter um, doesn't mean that, like, they are a 40% shooter that night. And also, that sort of ignores that, like, it's the idea that that is the best shot in that instantaneous moment. But, I mean, depending on how much of the shot clock you have left... The, wh- who's to say you couldn't get a dunk or a layup? I, I mean, so it's only the best shot in like that exact slice of time. But uh, again, depending on how the the defense is closing, and depend on how depending on how your shooters are shooting, and depending on who specifically happens to be sitting on that corner, that that's not exactly true. And it also, I, I mean, it's it's it, it's just. 
there's too many factors to consider uh, to be able to say like undoubtedly, right? Because the problem is, is like to be able to like accurately represent what's the best shot would be like, you'd have to consider like the game state, who's shooting the ball, who's passing the ball, how quick is the defense closing in? How well is that shooter shooting that night? Uh, Like, has the ball gotten a scuff on it? Like during, during the, gameplay has for any reason is there something in the sight line of that on the other side of that corner three that is causing for like a a decreased performance Uh, i mean there's all sorts of things that could potentially impact it right like did that player happen to like jam his finger in the defensive set just beforehand like uh, there is an infinite amount of factors and so it's like when we dumb down analytics to say, well, that's the best shot. It's saying it's essentially what it's saying is that all other factors are in are under control, which is not true. It's a heavily dynamic environment, so you can't actually um, simulate the the re- the real number. And, and furthermore, and I think that this is something that Amin Al Hassan has pointed out a lot in in the aspect of how their self the statistics are sort of self reinforcing, right? So. When we talk about um, how, like, the three-point shot is so valuable, right? And what does that then do, right? We increase the amount of three-point shooters on each team, right? Each team is going out to get these specialist guys who, you know, at one time, right, it was like Kyle Korver was your your guy. And say, I guess, like, um, you know, before that, maybe like a Steve Kerr and um, what, like a Tim Legler, right? There's a couple, like a handful at most of these sort of specialty guys where you knew like basically their role was to be a three-point shooter and stretch the floor. But now, like basically every team tries to have like multiple of these guys. And then, and and then you have a couple of superstars in the cases of like Steph Curry, uh, Damian Lillard, uh, Kevin Durant, um... Who else am I thinking of here who has, like, um, high three-point shooting percentages? Um, I mean, Devin Booker is, isn't, like, the the best three-point shooter, but certainly has it. What, um, there's there's other names. But I, I think you, you kind of get my point, right, of, like, like the superstar-level uh, players who are shooting, like, high percentages of threes, shooting it from long distances, all these things, right? So what does this do? It creates this trickle-down, right? Because now the next level is, well, from a college player's perspective, what's their best chance to get into the NBA? Become a very good three-point shooter. What do they work on? Three-point shooting. What are they not working on? Drive and, drive and kick, uh, pick and rolls, uh, you know, trying to, trying to force fouls at, under the rim, right? Finishing at the rim. All of these things, right? So then ultimately, you have a league where a lot, and then like, right, because the next step, because then the high schoolers, same thing. And then AAU, same thing. And so you just keep reinforcing all the way down to the beginning of the, the, your, like the baseline of your talent pool, right? Where, where the origins, the roots of where your talent's going to come from in 20 years, right? Or in like 10 years or five years. It, it trickles all the way down so that, these these kids are building their gra- their game specifically for that that 
stat, right? They're basically trying to model themselves towards that analytical uh, model. And so then what happens, right, is of course you have people who can't shoot, like, of course then a 15-foot jumper is a bad shot because no one shoots 15-foot jumpers. But, like, the thing that breaks the, like, the thing that sort of breaks the meta of the game, right, is the person who does it because the, the also what happens, right, is people don't defend a 15-foot jumper. And they don't know how to defend it because they, they're it's not what they're doing. They're not looking to defend that. They're thinking either this guy's trying to pass or this guy's trying to drive. But if he just pulls up and shoots, boom, right? Like, so... Uh, and and then similarly, obviously, with the the way the rules on of uh, defense and basketball work and and whatnot, I mean, if guys are really talented at finishing at the rim, like there's not really much of a reason f- for them to be a three point shooter. And yes, you can have some of your three point shooters whose job is to stretch the floor, but. For like the three point shot to be the goal, not the and and a, this is kind of taking from a mean here, um, where he says like the three point shot's the consequence, right? The the three point shot's the consequence of if you don't let my guy go go one on one, that and you pull someone off the perimeter, then I'm just going to pass it to him and he's going to th- shoot a three pointer. But if you're kind of not not playing in that manner, right? You're not playing to get your guy the the ball under the hoop or get some sort of drive to the rim. And the whole point of your game is just to create the three-point shot or just have guys jack up shots like crazy. Then that that's not I I, I mean that's only seen as analytically the right move like it's only the mathematically the right move because we've determined it to be the mathematically the right move and we've compounded that into building a player base in which that's the goal right i mean ultimately ultimately right it's what you train for and so if you're training to just be a three-point shooter and you just have four three-point shooters on your team with one guy who maybe gets in under the rim for rebounds then of course, that's the best option, but it doesn't mean that that's the only way to build a team, and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best way to build a team, because there are drawbacks to that. And so, but like every team is essentially wants to like it's a copycat league, right? People always say that basically across all the sports, it's always a copycat league. Whoever's doing it the right, like what seems to be the way that works, because what what this all was, right? The three point shot being like. The, the math on it is bogus to a certain degree, right? Because the reason that the math on the three-point shot got so good is because of the way that the game was being played where it was more of like inside-out basketball. And so you had all these guys who were not very good perimeter shooters. Or, well, yeah, I mean, you didn't have a lot of good perimeter shooters, but you didn't have a lot of good perimeter defenders. And you had a lot of guys who were, you, you know, maybe... They were built to play in the paint or or looking to get to the rim and draw fouls and all that, and you really condensed the floor. And so, of course, the inefficiency is, is if you can get a Steph Curry, for example, who can come in and just, like, fairly reliably make three-point shots, then that totally changes the game because the game's current iteration is not built to, to deal with it. But 
So now to think that somehow what this is, is like the end game of basketball is fairly ridiculous because what's going to happen is you're going to get better perimeter defenders and you're going to, you, you, I mean, you already have it, right? You've got like long guards. I mean, you've got guards who are like six, six with massive wingspans, like, you know, like Kawhi Leonard, who it's like, they, they can just, or, you know, guards and, and forwards, I guess, like as well, like to, to say as that basically can just play the perimeter and, that's going to open the floor up in the middle, and then all of a sudden, like, what's going to happen is someone's eventually going to realize that the math actually shows that there's better shots all inside the perimeter. And and so it's, like, it's one of these things, it just kind of seems silly to change the rules about it. I, I get, I mean, I get why they want to change the rules, because the problem is, right, like I said earlier, is that science eventually ruins art. Basketball is not fun to watch in this style of play, but... I, the rules don't need to change. A team just needs to decide that they want to play the game in a way that is is like good against that style. The, this is like one of these things that um, where all sports can kind of you, you can kind of make this uh, um, st- analogy for for most sports that's similar to that of like um, card games, like uh, Magic the Gathering or something like that. Or, or even in, in the case of like video games, like if you draw to like League of Legends, right? There are, there are compositions of teams and style styles of play that are good against other styles of play. Like it's not it's not quite rock paper scissors, but it's in effect, right? That that style has an edge against it. And so, to to essentially the problem with the progression of sport or in these games, for example, is when some when basically collectively we just agree whatever is now the meta is so good it will never be beaten. And it stagnates the whole progression of the game because no one's trying to play a different game anymore to to see can can is there a different way to play this game that is better? Because it's not actually about it really being better. It's about it being better good against what is currently the popular style of play. And and so, uh, again, it's just a matter of, like, if you're basically incentivizing for everyone to play a certain way, then, of course, statistically, it looks like the best way to play is to shoot threes because all you have are people who are good at three-point shooting and are not good at a lot of other attributes of the game, which have been disincentivized towards being good at. But in, in an effect... If you incentivize those things, you'd actually inevitably create a team that would beat a lot of the other teams as a result because they would play a style of play that is good against them, right? If you had, like, long players who are good perimeter shooters who know how to drive, I I mean, the current style of play where the game has kind of gotten smaller in effect, there's a much more room around the basket because you don't have big defenders. It's not the 90s. People aren't getting their heads fucking taken off the moment they step in the paint, and you can draw fouls and you can play that style of play. I mean, for example, a, a very good example of that style of player is Jimmy Butler, right? Jimmy Butler is not a very good three-point shooter. He's not a very good shooter in general, um, but he's great at driving to the rim. He's great at drawing fouls, and he's an excellent perimeter defender. And he's an excellent defender across the board, but he's an excellent perimeter defender, right? The, the Jimmy Butler model is very good against what, people are currently playing but you and right you need to build a team that sort of fits 
overall to counteract like what the full thing, right? You can't just have Jimmy Butler and then all of a sudden like every single team is now ruined like because he's just the, you know, the ace in the hole. It's like if you constructed a team that plays that style in a way that meshes well, you would you would be throttling teams as a result because all these teams are just wanting to be a cheap knockoff of the Warriors, effectively. The Warriors of, you know, five years ago. That that's a, that's effectively what it would be, right? It's that that's everyone's trying to be a cheap knockoff of the thing that worked a couple of times and not realizing that there's a way to play that's different and they could be better at it because why copycat something because you're not going to be as good as the original, right? I mean, it's just, that's just typically how it works. Like if your skill set, like Steph Curry is just clearly like, that's his skill set. And he is like, that's what he is like naturally good at. Yeah, like not to, um, obviously like he works hard and is like, really honed his skills but it's very clear like that that was the skill set that was always going to work for him like he was best suited to play that style of game to to maximize his ability right and so again like it just comes down to why try to be Steph Curry if that's not your game like if that's not what actually would be the best way to maximize your skill set why try to be that only because you think that three point shooting has been it is the best value. What it is, three point shooting is overvalued right now. That's what it is. I mean, if people actually wanted to get into like real analytics, the three point shot is overvalued. And so there's other room on the floor to make plays, and there's other ways to play the game that would beat it and also in an effect be more entertaining to watch. But but this is the problem is because of analytics, people only People who don't understand how to contextualize numbers, right? Because this is the biggest problem. And it goes back to my example earlier with like that when you really break it down on the fourth down conversion, your expected value is plus 0.12 points or 0.13 points, whatever. It's such a marginal amount of points that there's a slew of, you can't say, all other things are under control, right? Because it's the, the the environment's far too dynamic. You haven't considered all of the factors to actually refine that number. And because the number is so small and so close to zero, it only, it only would take one factor to, to slant that whole thing into the negative. And so you cannot just look at the numbers and decontextualize everything around them. Because, it, and you can't, you just you simply cannot actually model the situation because it's too unique, it's too dynamic. There's too many factors. And so analytics is just a generalization. And it's like again, if we go back to football, right? Because like if you go back to football and for example, you said over the course of like twenty years, like the fourth and one quarterback sneak has like a 80%, you know, I'd have to look at, let's, I, you know, I'll, I'll see if I can't look up the actual numbers. Um, one second here. Okay, so I pulled up some numbers here. So since 2015, uh, and this, this article, by the way, is just one of those hilarious things where it's like, okay, I just don't understand why people just don't want, like, 
we're so obsessed with analytics that we've completely disregarded the idea that you have to really look at the numbers and you have to ask questions about them to really find out what what's right. Okay, so since 2015, and I think this article was written in 2019, uh, yeah, 2019, the beginning of 2019. So between 2015 and 2019, this, this was done. So they, they titled the article, The QB Sneak is the Most Underutilized Play in Football. And so um, it says NFL coaches have called inside zone on third and fourth and short more than four times as much. First of all, they didn't define uh, short here. Let's see. Uh, the quarterback hides himself. It's far third and with a yard or less to go. Okay, so a yard or less to go uh, is what they're calling on fourth and short. So a fourth and fourth and uh, a yard or less, and then but but even then, one yard versus one inch is a huge difference, right? So like it, it's a completely different game. For, like because so if if do we know that these fourth and um, these cases where the QB sneak is used is fourth and a full yard or how often is it that it's used on fourth and a couple of inches or a foot, right? So again, right there, that's the first thing you can ask for, for contextualizing these numbers, but we don't get that context because in comparison here, it's saying, it's saying the QB sneak is the most underutilized play because inside zone which is the most called play, right? So an inside zone run is just the quarterback hands it off to the running back. There's no lead blockers. There's no pulling linemen. They just run it straight up the middle. The success rate is 68% on 1,193 attempts. The QB sneak is at an 88% success rate on 266 attempts. Now, this is very important, obviously, because the first, again, the first question is, all thing, all things are not equal, right? Fourth and a full one yard and fourth and an inch are two very different plays. So in comparison, out of all of those inside zone plays, what what is the actual breakdown of like fourth and a yard, fourth and a half a yard, fourth and inches, right? And same thing with the QB sneak, because I, I suspect that you would find that they don't call very many Q, QB sneaks on fourth and one full yard. And they do call a lot on fourth and inches, and vice versa. They don't call very much inside zone on fourth and inches, and they call a lot on fourth and one full yard. So that's a completely different that's a completely different game right there. Also, sample size, right? So inside zone, you have a sample size of nearly twelve hundred attempts. QB sneak is almost five times less than that at two hundred and sixty six, right? Because two hundred and sixty six times is what thirteen hundred and. 30, I want to say. Let's do the math really quick here just to... Yeah, 1330. Um, so roughly five times less of a sample size. So it, it is not exactly fair to assume that this success rate would remain this high if you 5x'd the amount of times that you QB sneaked, right? So uh, it, it's more than likely this number would go down. Because 88% is really high. It's hard to imagine you'd hold 88% if you 5x the numbers, right? So so that's that right there is, again, contextualizing the numbers. But but there's no context in this article. This article just says the QB sneak is the most underutilized play. And they're they're so basically what they're doing is they're extrapolating and saying, well, if you 5x the attempts, you would have an 88% success rate. 
And so there's no reason you should ever run inside zone because you should always run QB sneak because it's better. But also, by the way, if they really wanted to kind of do this disingenuous uh, approach of the numbers is just at, tied with it at 88% success rate is the QB design run at 184 attempts. So it it's like, why is the QB design run not just as underutilized? But for some reason there, we can now say, well, because at 184 attempts, that's just not a big enough sample size. But then, so they go on to try and contextualize this a little bit by saying, okay, in theory, based on these numbers, if a team is in third and one, uh, two consecutive quarterback sneaks, they would have approximately a 98% chance of converting. Okay, that's a ridiculous um, because that's oversimplifying the numbers. Um they even say this is obviously an imperfect approach. It doesn't factor in defensive adjustments, but it does help illustrate how baffling it is that teams continue to take the ball out of the QB's hands in these situations. No, it, it it's like they actually go and make the argument for why you can't do those numbers and then say, but realistically, you know, those numbers are close enough. They're not. They're not even remotely close enough. Um so then they go on to say, what's more, the QB sneak is not an acquired skill, and it doesn't require a particularly athletic quarterback. Since 2015, Blake Bortles, Nick Foles, Drew Brees, and Josh Allen have all boasted perfect conversion rates. Drew Brees has the most successes with 23 of 23. Um, Carson Wentz, Kirk Cousins, Matt Ryan have each only failed only once, and no quarterback has a conversion rate lower than the inside zone 68%. Okay, but again... So 23 out of 23 for Drew Brees is an anomaly, right? That's very little. But also during that time frame, they had one of the best centers in the league. So if you have, uh, what, what's his name? Uh, Unger, right? Like, so Max Unger or something like that. He had what he had like the best center in the league. So yes, if you have the best center in the league, then you are going to have a very high likelihood of converting on fourth and one or shorter. But obviously, but that's not even about the quarterback. That's about who, how good is your center? How good are your guards at getting push off the line of scrimmage? Who is the defensive lineman on top of you? Also, what they didn't call, right? So Drew Brees has a success rate of 23 over of 23. How many of those had a nose tackle directly over the, the center versus how many of those actually had a four-man front where they were running more of a um, tackles over the guards or even on the outside shoulder of the guards and, and then trying to supplement with a linebacker over the middle who's stepping like three, four yards back? I, I mean, so you can't just say like, oh, well, you know, Drew Brees is 23 out of 23. You should never do anything other than that because that you've never you're not even regarding what the defensive line uh, lineup is. So how much of this twenty three out of twenty three is actually with someone over the the guard uh, over the center or at the very least on the inside shoulder of the guard? It, it doesn't contextualize that, and again, doesn't contextualize the fact that it's the they had like the best center in the league. Also, they say like doesn't have to be particularly uh, athletic. You could say what you want about how bad Blake Bortles was in the NFL. Blake Bortles was athletic, and also he was like 6'5". So yes, if you have a 6'5 athletic quarterback, the chances that they can push up the middle and get one yard is very high. Nick Foles, not super athletic, but he's like 6'6". Again, same thing. He just needs to fall forward. Drew Brees, you can say, okay, not particularly athletic and not very tall, but again, best center in the league. Josh Allen, 
6'5", very athletic. So I don't know why they say doesn't require a particularly athletic quarterback. And then three, like two of the quarterbacks that they list out of the four are super athletic. And then one of them is six foot six. And then here, Carson Wentz, athletic. And like Kirk Cousins, okay, you can say not, not super athletic, but he's not that unathletic. And I don't recall how tall he is, but I, I would have to look it up. Let's see. How, how tall is Kirk Cousins? How tall is Kirk Cousins? Kirk Cousins is 6'3". Okay, that's a, a reasonable height. Again, like Matt Ryan, I think, is like 6'5", right? So Matt Ryan's very tall. Not super athletic, but not very tall. Like, But he is 6'5". Um, so, again, you're, you're looking at these numbers, and you're completely decontextualizing. Because, again, no nothing in here talks about... What are what's the situation against whose defense are they doing this against? Because are they doing this against the best defenses in the NFL, or are they doing this against bad defenses when they're trying to take advantage of it and keep this this going? So uh, it, it doesn't look at this. Nothing in here. And and so then okay, so they talk about increase of volume showed uh, no effect in performance of the QB sneak. Uh, okay, in def, in the defensive teams, the QB sneak has been has seen a steady increase since 2016. Let's see. The inside zone remains the most common play in short yardage, outpacing the QB sneak. The increase in volume showed almost no effect on the performance of the QB sneak. Um, but the increase in volume... The increase in volume went from, in 2016, at 55 QB sneaks to 2018, 130. So it's a change of 75. Uh, it, it's... You're still talking about an extremely small sample size versus like it, it doesn't really make sense like to look at that as like to say, oh, well, there wasn't much of, of a difference. Well, there also wasn't really that much of a difference in the amount of attempts when you compare to overall the amount of situations in which that could could occur. Um yeah, and it actually did go down. And like they say its success rate, like they say no effect, but its success rate went from eighty-eight to eighty-seven percent. That's, I, I mean, so that's not exactly like there's no effect when you're going to say a small amount of increase in the attempts actually led to a small amount of decrease in the percentage of success. It's uh, inside zone did not become more effective with its decrease in volume. It's 68% success rate matched. Yeah, but its decrease in volume went from 404 to 225. So yes, I mean, you've significantly decreased the sample size, but no one is really arguing that the inside zone is a good... I, I don't think the inside run zone is a good call, and I don't think that most people do argue it, although I, I do... I, I mean, I agree with the premise of this article that uh, in, a, in a sense of why the fuck are we running inside zones? I, I don't get it. Like, it, it doesn't really make much sense. Um in terms of personnel, teams have also shown a strong tendencies towards heavy personnel when it comes to short yardage. To see this effect this has had, we looked at the first down conversion rates against the number of players the offense has in the box. Men in the box on the offensive side is just a count of how many men are on or near the line of scrimmage excluding the quarterback. Uh, attempts versus men in the box. First down percentage versus men in the box. So increasing the amount of men in the box decreases the first down percentage. Uh Increasing the amount of men in the box um, increases... I don't know what that graph is even supposed to be. In similar fashion to the play types, the most effective personnel grouping is is also the most infrequently used. The six-man box. Most Again, this is so... 
this is where <laughs> you can't just take small sample sizes of an outlier and then say, well, it's the most effective. We should be ramping this up. So basically what they're saying is that if they if an offense, excluding the quarterback, has six men in the box, which is basically what? All of the linemen and the running back? Um, so then they have like a four wide receiver set, had, had a first down conversion rate of 82%, but was only used 89 times. The nine-man box most frequently used by coaches at 692. Uh, that's a that's a significant difference here, people. That's a significant multiple difference. Had a conversion rate of only 71%. So it went from 82% to 71%. I would argue that when you're going to say you're going to like 8x the amount of attempts and you're going to go from 82 to 71%, I, I don't think that's anything other than normal. Like, I, I think if you 8x the amount of times you did six men boxes, you would also see a similar drop from, like, probably more so. Um, let's see. Yeah, so that's the end of the article. So they don't really, t they, this is what sports analytics is right now, right? Like, this is sports info solutions. So this is what, like research and analysis solutions. This company legitimately, it, like, this website, is legitimately a website that is supposed to be for sports analytics and, and, and analysis. And this is this is legitimately what people think of passes for like real analytical analysis of a situation. This didn't could this didn't go through anything. This surface leveled everything so that you could argue that the QB sneak is the most undervalued play in football because it's has a super high percentage success rate on a super small sample size. It's like, I'm so glad I found this article because really all I was going to talk about is that the, the number is probably super heavily skewed by the fact that Tom Brady was so fucking good at it because he had an he had the one of the best offensive lines in football and he's six foot five or six foot four, whatever. Like, and so, and he just has a really good skill at the, at like knowing where to go and, and how to get the ball forward. Like. It's just, it, it's mind-blowing to me because this actually was, this article and breaking down this article was far more effective in, in what I wanted to talk about than what I was going to talk about. Sports Info Solutions. This, I, I mean, this is, a, this is really ridiculous. I, I can't believe this. This is, so this is what I'm talking about. Like, when, when like, and, and science is ruining sport to a certain degree because it's bad science. It's bad math. And it's, like... And then people are going to say, well, okay, in the defensive anal analytics, you can't, you can't account for all of the entire environment. And all you can do is take a really large sample size and then say that that somehow provides enough context, which is not true. It's not true. You're, you're, you're essentially trying to take a massive sample size that will have such a high diversity of um, situations, and then basically all you can, like, it, it's not actually going to tell you anything because depending on, like, ultimately what's going to happen is the, the, the result is going to be skewed by what's the most common or, like, what, what works the best, basically, but 
that is like again like coming back to like of course QB sneaks are really high if you're fucking Drew Brees with the best fucking center in the game and Tom Brady with one of the best offensive lines like it it's it it doesn't make any sense that that like those numbers don't mean anything to another team so it, it doesn't make sense to try and just group this massive amount of data and then say this is applicable to your team in this situation. Because it's not. It's not. And and to use it and then try and say, well, because the sample size is so big, you don't have to care about the environment that you're in at all is ridiculous. And so it's, yeah, I, I mean, so then, so that's the defense, right, is that you can't account for all of it. And my retort would be, yeah, so it means that this is not a good tool. Like, eventually... You can try and use a hammer to hammer a screw into the wall as much as you want. And, it, you know, sometimes it's going to work depending on the wall and depending on the screw and depending on how hard you hit it with the hammer. But ultimately, at some point, you have to agree that the hammer is just not the right tool for the fucking job. So it's just like analytics only helps so much. It, it cannot be like you can use your hammer when the nail is there. And you can use your fucking screwdriver when the fucking screw is there. There's no reason to, to overuse analytics only because somehow someone has convinced you that the math is good or that, like, look at these numbers, look at this analysis, when in reality, it's all surface level. It's not accounting for anything. It's, it's absolute fucking nonsense. And so... That I, I mean, I know that a lot of people, again, are probably a little surprised that me very, being very analytically minded and very scientifically minded is like so against analytics in this way. And it's like, I'm not even against analytics. It's just not even being used right. And that's what bothers me. It's not being used right. And then like and then so because it's being misused. It's not it, – it actually puts it in a bad light. And not only that, but it's being misused and it's causing the product on the field to look worse in every case. All – every sport has looked worse since analytics got involved. Every single sport. No, none of them have looked better because of analytics. They've only looked better because of other aspects of science that have been used correctly, right? Like I talked about, like the nutrition, the training programs, like the sleep schedules, all these things, the, the travel, the, like the acclimation to the climate, all these things, right? Like all of these other factors that like play into the role, like where science has been used well. But this, this is a joke. This is, not, this is not right, and there's a reason the product is bad. And I, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? Like... So, um, I, I guess I don't really have that much more to say on it. I appreciate if you've listened through my rant on this. Um, and like always, you know, if, if you enjoyed this, especially if you enjoyed this one, I, cause this is something I actually like care a good amount about. Like I've really wanted to have this discussion for a long time. So, um, you know, if you liked it, please let me know. If you have some, if you believe you have some sort of um, argument argument against what I'm saying, please let me know. I'd be happy. I'd very much be interested to hear another side on this. Um, or if you agree, like, great, tell me about it. That always feels nice too. And 
if you liked it one way or the other, please share it with a friend or, or whomever who might also find it interesting. So, and, and while you're at it, please, um, you know, su- subscribe or follow whatever on, on whatever podcast platforms you, you listen to. And if you like this, please give a, a rating and a review while you're at it. So, peace out. <laughs>